Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome everyone to what I'm calling Christmas with Meister Eckhart. This is something that I've been wanting to do since, um, you know, we, we all love Meister Eckhart here on the channel. And of course, he is uh, famous, among other things, for doing his Christmas or Advent sermons for, for the Christmas season. We did read one of those sermons a few years ago, but um, there are more than one. So um, the idea here is to do a kind of series where once every week on, on Sunday, we will read one of those sermons and, and finishing off on hopefully on Christmas Eve. And today, at least when I'm recording this, today is the first of Advent. And Advent is this um, period in, in, in waiting for, for the, the, the birth of, of Christ in Christianity, right? It's, it's, it's from the, the, the fourth Sunday before Christmas until Christmas Eve is called Advent. And this is a time of usually of, of fasting and contemplation, again, in sort of preparation for, for Christmas when, when Christians will celebrate the, the, the birth of, of Jesus or of Christ. So, and again, you know, I'm recording this on Sunday, but probably I won't be able to edit this in time. So I'm sorry that this first one is not like actually on the Sunday, but hopefully the, the coming um, videos will be on time on, on each Sunday. Um, and we will be reading uh, some of those Meister Eckhart sermons that are so fascinating and so beautiful. Um, just to make things even more dramatic and, and uh, special. Uh, we're of course gonna we're gonna light the Advent candle, the first one here. So one every week until Christmas. Um, let's see, I only have one have one chance to do this. That's the first one. There we go. For all of the sweets out there I feel like on a vice right now. Um, I thought this would be a this would be a, a, a cozy and nice way to to celebrate the Christmas season this year with the great Catholic uh, friar, uh, Domin Dominican friar even, philosopher, mystic, theologian Meister Eckhart from Germany. Um, Meister Eckhart was all of those things. He was from from Germany, from from what is known as the. Well, it's in the region of the Rhine River, right? So he's one of the so-called Rhineland mystics alongside others like Hildegard and, you know, uh, Henry Suso and, and Tauler and all these people. Um, Eckhart is, is very famous for his very daring philosophical ideas. He lived between the 13th century to, um, he died in, in 1328. And his ideas, like he was a prominent figure in the Dominican church. He was a professor or he was a, a master, as his name suggests, in, in the university in Paris. He taught at that university. He also taught in Cologne and in different places. So he was a prominent figure. Uh, I mean, he would preach and, and, and write works of philosophy and theology. And in particular, his preaching was, was really what, one of the things that he was most famous for, especially his preaching in his native language, which was Middle High German. And, and those, those sermons in German, in Middle High German, have survived, and those are also often the most profound ones because he uses the German language in such a creative way. Rather than using the sort of liturgical uh, language of Latin, which was 
the most common, and he does use Latin in his written works. Um, when he preaches, um, he uses Middle High German. He's able to sort of use that language in such a fascinating and beautiful way. He comes up with new words for things, and just it's really amazing. And one or actually one series of those sermons in German was held. There are four of them. They were held in Christmas season, and as I understand it, they were held on each Sunday of, of Advent until Christmas Eve. Um, I'm not sure what the audience was. It doesn't seem like this was one of those sermons for the general public, but perhaps for a more select group of, of you know, maybe monks or nuns, because he's speaking about things that are more advanced, let's say, in that sense. Um, so Eckhart, again, a prominent figure, but also a controversial one, because Eckhart had some very daring ideas. And we talked about this in our full video on Eckhart, which you can check out, but also briefly in our previous episode where we read one of these sermons, in that the basic idea of Eckhart's philosophy, Bernard McGinn talks about the, the core of Eckhart's thought, as he calls it, the mysticism of the ground. And Eckhart talks particularly about this concept in German called the Grund, which is what it's translated as the ground. Uh, the Grund, it's not the ground just in the sense of being like something you walk on. Grund also means things like foundation, essence, um, core, like the most foundational core of something or, or origin of something. It can mean all these different things. And, and what I would say, at least, is that the core of, of Eckhart's philosophy is this idea that the ground of the soul, of the human being, and the ground of God is one and the same ground. And that's a really profound idea, right? Um, some would call it a kind of non-dualism. I'm careful with those kinds of terms. But certainly there's this idea that, that, that the ground of God is the ground of all things. God is identified with being and the being of all things, and all things other than God are nothingness, right? And we recognize this from many other mystical philosophers as well. And this philosophy, and we'll get into the details of some of these things as we read, but these philosophies of Eckhart, so this mystical theology, or whatever you want to refer to it as, comes out in these amazing uh, Christmas sermons that he, uh, that he, that he held uh, back then. Um, in particular, when it comes to Christmas, Eckhart has a pretty unique perspective. And again, we talked about this in our earlier video, talking about you know, Christmas according to Meister Eckhart. But Eckhart's view on Christmas is certainly uh, focused on the metaphysical, you could say. Um, Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus, the birth of Christ, and he recognizes, of course, that that is what the celebration is about on a surface level. It's about the birth of the human Christ, but he doesn't focus on that, right? His whole thing is focusing rather on the metaphysical um, implications and aspects of that. Uh, what is the birth of Christ? It is the birth of the Son um, to the Father, right? The birth of the Word, as it is said in, in the Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, or Logos, is identified with the Son, with Christ. So he uses these terms, the birth of the Son, or the birth of the Word. Um, and this birth not only takes place in history with the human Christ, but uh, it is the birth um, of the Son in the Trinity, which takes place eternally, in the eternal present. It is something that happens before creation, before time. Um, and thus, it is, profoundly according to Eckhart, taking place right now, the birth of the Son, um, in the divine ground, so to say. And remember also that we said that according to Eckhart, the ground of God and the ground of the soul is one and the same ground, which means that the birth of the sun is taking place in the depths of the soul of the human being as well. And so the mystical journey is this process of, of stripping away, detaching all thing, uh, yourself from all things, from all individuality, from all multiplicity, all these uh, external things, until you sort of penetrate into that ground, the silent, complete darkness, the nothingness, the unknowing of the ground of the soul. And there, 
when we break through, and he, he uses a term in German, which I cannot remember at the moment, sadly, he comes up with a term of his own, actually, that is often translated as detaching, or sorry, of, of breaking through. Um, and when we break through, we go beyond you know, multiplicity and duality, beyond even the concept of God, into the ground. And in that ground, in that silence, we thus experience that birth of the sun within ourselves. And that is the sort of a symbol of the utmost um, mystical experience, right? So that is to, to echo what, what Christmas is about. And there are several dimensions to that. It's the birth of the, of the sun in, in, in God, right? or birth of the sun metaphysically in the eternal present. It's also uh, the birth, our birth in God as the sun, as we are all sons and children of God. It's the birth of God in ourselves in a certain sense. Um, because, again, the ground of the soul and the ground of God is one and the same ground, and so that birth takes place within ourselves. It is part of our own ground, our own being. And so these themes are all sort of interwoven in these, in these sermons. So, you know, um, that's, I think, uh, a good amount of background for us to sort of dive into the text itself. We're going to be using uh, the translations by Maurice O. C. Walsh, from this beautiful uh, volume of the complete works of Meister Eckhart, uh, and of course we're going to beginning uh, we're going to be beginning by by reading the first of of the sermons. Um, and this first sermon is really interesting in many ways. It's to me at least it's the clearest one. He is very clear in his argumentation. He's very clear um, in different ways. And and fascinatingly, this sermon, through his discussion about this birth of the bird and the birth you know Christmas he basically summarizes so many aspects of his thought at the same time. So as we go through, you'll see that all these themes, if, especially if you've if you read Meister Eckhart before, or you watched my full video on his philosophy, you'll see that like many of those sort of cornerstone features of his thought comes up in this sermon in different ways, um, which hopefully you'll see. Um, my idea here is that I will read the sermon and I will also be stopping and sort of giving short comments on what's going on. Sometimes I'm trying that out this first time. If you guys don't like that and you want me to just read through the whole thing, then let me know in the comments and maybe I'll, I'll change that for, for, the, for next time. But I think it could be helpful also to have um, some, some sort of comments, some, some context to what's going on or clarifications of certain things. Not that I'm some sort of, you know, experts on, on Eckhart in particular, but um, I think it could be helpful for some people. So, without further ado, uh, let's begin reading the first sermon of Meister Eckhart, delivered sometime 700 years ago, uh, on, um, maybe not on this very day, but around this season, this Christmas season, so many years ago. And, they, you know, even though it was so long ago, um, at least to me, Regardless of your sort of religious affiliation, and you guys know that mine is complicated, right? But um, uh, regardless, these words really have a profound impact on, on many people as they read it. So here is the first sermon of Meister Eckhart in his sort of Christmas series of sermons. Here in time, we are celebrating the eternal birth which God the Father bore and bears unceasingly in eternity, because this same birth is now born in time in human nature. St. Augustine says, What does it avail me that this birth is always happening if it does not happen in me? That it should happen in me is what matters. We shall therefore speak of this birth of how it may take place in us and be consummated in the virtuous soul, whenever God the Father speaks his eternal word in the perfect soul. For what I say here is to be understood of the good and perfected man who has walked and is still walking in the ways of God, not of the natural undisciplined man, for he is entirely remote from and totally ignorant of this birth. So this is why I'm saying that this sermon was probably aimed at people who were more on a sort of more mystical, dedicated path, perhaps monks or nuns, for example. Those are the kinds of people um, who are able to have this ex experience or this, this uh, go on this path because it is a difficult path uh, only meant for, for, for certain people, so to say. 
There is a saying of the wise man, when all things lay in the midst of silence, then there descended down into me from on high, from the royal throne, a secret word. This sermon is about that word. So this is the Bible quote. This is uh, uh, the quote that, that the whole sermon sort of revolves around. Three things are to be noted here. The first is, where in the soul God the Father speaks his word, where this birth takes place, and where she is receptive of this act. For that can only be in the very purest, loftiest, subtlest part that the soul is capable of. In very truth, if God the Father in his omnipotence could endow the soul with anything more noble, and if the soul could have received from him anything nobler, then the Father would have had to delay the birth for the coming of this greater excellence. Therefore, the soul in which this birth is to take place must keep absolutely pure and must live in noble fashion, quite collected and turned entirely inward, not running out through the five senses into the multiplicity of creatures, but all interned and collected and in the purest part. There is his place. He disdains anything less. The second part of this sermon has to do with man's conduct in relation to this act, to God speaking of his word within, to this birth, whether it is more profitable for man to cooperate with it so that it may come to pass in him through his own exertion and merit, by a man's creating in himself a mental image in his thoughts and disciplining himself that way by reflecting that God is wise, omnipotent, eternal, or whatever else he can imagine about God, whether this is more profitable and conductive to this birth from the Father, or whether one should shun and free oneself from all thoughts, words, and deeds, and from all images created by the understanding, maintaining a holy God-receptive attitude, such that one's own self is idle, letting God work within one. Which conduct conduces best to this birth? The third point is the profit, and how great it is, which accrues from this birth. Note in the first place that in what I am about to say, I shall make use of natural proofs so that you yourselves can grasp that it is so. For though I put more faith in the scriptures than in myself, yet it is easier and better for you to learn by means of arguments that can be verified. This is the, the philosopher in Eckhart speaking, right? So using arguments and, 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 and you know, proofs to, to uh, sort of get at what he's saying. First, we will take the words, in the midst of silence there was spoken within me a secret word. But sir, where is the silence and where is the place where the word is spoken? As I said just now, it is in the purest thing that the soul is capable of, in the noblest part, the ground, indeed in the very essence of the soul, which is the soul's most secret part. There is the silent middle, for no creature ever entered there, and no image, nor has the soul there either activity or understanding. Therefore, she is not aware there of any image, whether of herself or of any other creature. Whatever the soul effects, she effects with her powers. What she understands, she understands with the intellect. What she remembers, she does with memory. If she would love, she does that with the will, and thus she works with her powers and not with her essence. Every external act is linked with some means. The power of sight works only through the eyes, otherwise it can neither employ nor bestow a vision, and so it is with all the other senses. The soul's every external act is affected by some means. But in the soul's essence there is no activity, for the power she works with emanate from the ground of being. Yet in that ground is the silent middle. Here, nothing but rest and celebration for this birth, this act, that God the Father may speak his word there, for this part is by nature receptive to nothing save only the divine essence without mediation. Here, God enters the soul with his all, not merely with a part. God enters here the ground of the soul. None can touch the ground of the soul but God alone. No creature can enter the soul's ground, but must stop outside in the powers. So, to clarify here, he's talking about the fact that um, the ground is this utter simplicity that is sort of beyond knowledge of outside things, right? Or rather, 
when the soul knows things, it knows it through images, through things externally, right? So we, uh, when I know this lamp, I see it with my eyes, so my eyes take it in, and then it, that leaves a sort of imprint or image on my mind. So everything comes from outside. Uh, knowledge of God or, or you know, the grace of God is not reached through this way. Rather, it is reached through the ground of the soul or in the ground of the soul, which is beyond these senses and these kinds of images. In the ground, there is no image. There is no form. There is, there is nothing, right? So Eckhart talks about the ground as, as a kind of utter nothingness. It's not, a can, it's not knowing. It's unknowing. And he, like, he takes this a lot from Pseudo-Dionysius, of course, if you're familiar with him. Um, that in this ground, there is just complete silence and darkness. He calls it a nothingness, even. But in a literal sense, a no-thingness. There is nothing there. And that is where God can sort of speak. And, and he literally says that he enters the ground of the soul here. As we saw, though, God is, like, the ground of God is the ground of the soul. And that is why he can enter there, because there is no mediation. It is a kind of direct presence and, and knowledge that is beyond image or word or anything. Just a kind of direct ontological existential unity and, and direct apprehension and, and presence of God. So that's the difference here, right? Uh, between knowing things externally through the powers, as he says, and knowing things in the ground, which is a direct, immediate uh, knowing, if we can call it knowing, a direct, immediate unknowing, which is a sort of direct um, union uh, with God in a certain sense. Within, the soul sees clearly the image whereby the creature has been drawn in and taken lodging. For whenever the powers of the soul make contact with the creature, they set to work and make an image and the likeness of the creature, which they absorb. That is how they know the creature. No creature can come closer to the soul than this, and the soul never approaches a creature without having first voluntarily taken an image of it into herself. Through this presented image, the soul approaches creatures, an image being something that the soul makes of external objects with her own powers. Whether it is a stone, a horse, a man, or anything else that she wants to know, she gets out the image of it that she has already taken in, and is thus enabled to unite herself with it. But for a man to receive an image in this way, it must of necessity enter from without through the senses. In consequence, there is nothing so unknown to the soul as herself. Accordingly, one master says that the soul can neither create nor obtain an image of herself. Therefore, she has no way of knowing herself, for images all enter through the senses, and hence she can have no image of herself. And so she knows all other things, but not herself. Of nothing does she know so little as of herself for want of mediation. And this is interesting because we can connect it to other um, ideas in other um, schools of thought, such as in um, different forms of, of Hindu or Hindu, like Indic thought, like Vedanta, for example. They talk about self-knowledge as a sort of pure, absolute knowledge that is just apparent to everyone. We all know ourselves, but at the same time, the self is that which we know the least about. Which because we cannot know anything about the self because the self is pure subjectivity. And as Eckhart talks about here, um, and when we have knowledge of things, it's all external things coming into to our awareness and leaving an image on the soul. Uh, but the soul has no, ex there's, there's nothing external, like the soul is not external to the soul, right? It's just our self, our, our soul. And so we can have... We can't have that kind of knowledge of ourselves that we have of other things. In other words, if we define knowledge in that sense that we usually do, then we know nothing about ourselves. We know nothing about our soul, and that is what he's saying here. Although we can also sort of um, assume that we do have a kind of, we have some sort of knowledge of ourselves that we forget, but that's the knowledge we get when we, we, when we break through back into that ground, and which, at which point we get a kind of knowledge we can call our knowledge again, of ourselves as united to the ground of the divine. Right? That, is, that is how I read this in any, uh, anyway. Um, let's continue. And you must know too that inwardly the soul is free and void of all means and all images, which is why God can free you, freely unite with her without form or likeness. 
whatever power you ascribe to any master, you cannot but ascribe that power to God without limit. The more skilled and powerful the master, the more immediately is his work affected, and the simpler it is. Man requires many means for his external works. Much preparation for the, of the material is needed before he can produce them as uh, he has imagined them. But the sun, in its sovereign mastery, performs its task, which is to give light, very swiftly. The instant its radiance is poured forth, the ends of the earth are full of light. More exalted is the angel who needs still less means for his work and has fewer images. The highest seraph has but a single image. He seizes as a unity all that his inferiors regard as manifold. But God needs no image, and he has no image. Without any means, likeness, or image, God operates in the soul, right in the ground where no image ever got in, but only he himself with his own being. This no creature can do. How does God the Father give birth to a son in the soul, like creatures in images and likenesses? No, by my faith, but just as he gives birth to him in eternity, no more, no less. Well, but how does he give birth to him then? Now see, God the Father has a perfect insight into himself, profound and thorough knowledge of himself by himself and not through any image. And thus God the Father gives birth to his Son in the true unity of the divine nature. See, it is like this and in no other way that God the Father gives birth to the Son in the ground and essence of the soul, and thus unites himself with her. For if any image were present there would be no real union, and in that real union lies the soul's whole beatitude. So here we get to that central idea of Eckhart's of the union of the ground of the soul and the ground of God, right? So we see... Already we see some of those key features of his thought present in this sermon revolving around you know, the theme of Christmas and the birth of the Son. Now, you might say, there is by nature nothing in the soul but images. Not at all. If that were so, the soul could never become blessed, for God cannot make any creature from which you can receive perfect blessedness, Otherwise, God would not be the highest blessing and the final goal, whereas it is his nature to be this, and it is his will to be the Alpha and Omega of all things. No creature can constitute your blessedness, nor can it be your perfection here on earth, for the perfection of this life, which is the sum of all the virtues, is followed by the perfection of the life to come. Therefore, you have to be and dwell in the essence and in the ground, and there God will touch you with his simple essence without the intervention of any image. No image represents and signifies itself, it always aims and points to that of which it is the image. And since you have no image but of what is outside yourself, which is drawn in through the senses and continually points to that which, of which it is the image, therefore it is impossible for you to be beatified by any image whatsoever. So I read a kind of platonic uh, thing here, right? And if everything is, a, is an image that, that points to that of which it is the image. Um, and, and the image themselves can never, um, you can never be beatified by an image, he says. You can only be beatified by that of which it is the image. And ultimately, and I might be reading platonic ideas and maybe like Akbarian ideas into this here, but it seems to me at least that ultimately... The, the, the thing of which everything is an image is, at the end of the day, God, right? So, and that seems to fit into what the point he's making is that only God can accomplish that. Nothing other than God can do that. We continue. And therefore, there must be a silence and a stillness, and the Father must speak in that and give birth to his Son and perform his works free from all images. The second point is, what must a man contribute by his own actions in order to procure and deserve the occurrence and the consummation of this birth in himself? Is it better to do something towards this, to imagine and think about God, or should he keep still and silent in peace and quiet and let God speak and work in him, merely waiting for God to act? So, I think the question he's asking is pretty self-explanatory, right? Are we participating in this process of, of sort of uniting with the ground, so to say? Or is it rather a sort of complete passivity where we just fall away from ourselves and let God sort of pour forth his, his grace into us? Or is there some kind of 
to, 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 to put it in a crude way, is there some kind of philosophizing involved here? Now I say, as I said before, that these words and this act are only for the good and perfected people who have so absorbed and assimilated the essence of all virtues that these virtues emanate from them naturally, without their seeking. And above all, there must dwell in them the worthy life and lofty teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. They must know that the very best and noblest attainment in this life is to be silent and let God work and speak within. When the powers have been completely withdrawn from all their works and images, then the word is spoken. Remember that word and son is synonymous in Christian theology. So, again, this word is the son being born in the soul, right? Therefore, he said, in the midst of the silence, the secret word was spoken unto me. Again, going back to that Bible verse that the whole thing revolves around. And so, the more completely you are able to draw in your powers to a unity and forget all those things and their images which you have absorbed, and the further you can get from creatures and their images, the nearer you are to this and the readier to receive it. If only you could suddenly be unaware of all things, then you could pass into an oblivion of your own body, as St. Paul did, when he said, Whether in the body I cannot tell, or out of the body I cannot tell, God knows it. So this is interesting. We go back to that idea of unknowing, right? Um, this knowing that we're trying to reach of our, of our true selves as the, you know, the union of the ground of God and the soul can only be done by detaching from all other things, or from all things, really. Everything that is a thing needs to be detached from, whether that is creatures or images or, or our idea of ourselves, our soul, even our idea of God, right? This is a recurring thing in, in Eckhart, right? We should get rid of all of our thoughts, our ideas, all the knowledge we think we have until we just, everything is just complete nothingness and silence. Only then, he says here, right? Only then can God speak the word in the soul. It's very a key, key thing to understand about Eckhart and very profound, right? In this case, the spirit had so entirely absorbed the powers that it had forgotten the body. Memory no longer functioned, nor understanding, nor the senses, nor the powers that should function so as to govern and grace the body. Vital warmth and body heat were suspended so that the body did not waste during the three days when he neither ate nor drank. Thus too Moses fared when he fasted for forty days in the mountain and was none the worse for it. For on the last day he was as strong as on the first. In this way a man should flee his senses, turn his powers inward and sink into an oblivion of all things and himself. Concerning this a master addressed the soul thus, Withdraw from the unrest of external activities, then flee away and hide from the turmoil of inward thoughts, for they but create discord. So this is the kind of image, or the, the, the kind of imagery that we all love about Eckhart, right? Which he gets, of course, from people like Pseudo-Dionysius, but still, this idea of, he says, turn his powers inward and sink into an oblivion of all things in himself. This is such powerful language to me, right? This idea of just, and, and he is unique, like this is a common thing we find in, in mysticism, generally uh, defined, right, um, of sort of turning away from ourselves, of, 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 of annihilating the ego and so on, but um, few people use this kind of such strong and powerful imagery as people like Eckhart and Pseudo-Dionysius, where we're to sort of just sink into an oblivion of all things and of ourselves. I just love this kind of language. And so, if God is to speak his word in the soul, she must be at rest and at peace. And then he will speak his word and himself in the soul. No image but himself. Dionysius, and there he shows up, of course. Dionysius says, God has no image or likeness of himself, for he is intrinsically all goodness, truth, and being. God performs all his works, whether within himself or outside himself, in a flash. Do not imagine that God, when he made heaven and earth and all things, made one thing one day and another the next. Moses describes it like that, but he really knew better. He did so for the sake of people who could not conceive or grasp it any other way. All God did was this. He willed, he spoke, and they were. 
so here, of course, the classic uh, sort of Abrahamic thing of God speaking the word into existence. We are reminded of, of you know, the first words of Genesis. Uh, God says, you know, let there be light, and there was light, and so on. Or even in the Quran, where, where it says, um, kun fayakun, right? So God only has to say, be kun, and it is. This is very similar to what Eckhart is saying here. We continue. God works without means and without images. And the freer you are from images, the more receptive you are for his inward working. And the more introverted and self-forgetful, the nearer you are to this. Dionysius exhorted his pupil Timothy in this sense, saying, Dear son Timothy, do you with untroubled mind soar above yourself and all your powers, above ratiocination and reasoning, above works, above all modes and existence, into the secret still darkness, that you may come to the knowledge of the unknown super-divine God. There must be a withdrawal from all things. God scorns to work through images. Now you might say, what does God do without images in the ground and essence? That I cannot know, because my soul powers receive only in images. They have to know and lay hold of each thing in its appropriate image. They cannot recognize a horse when presented with the image of a man, and since all these enter from without, that knowledge is hidden from my soul, which is to her great advantage. This not knowing makes her wonder and leads her to eager pursuit, for she perceives clearly that it is, but does not know how or what it is. Whenever a man knows the causes of things, then he at once tires of them and seeks to know something different. Always clamoring to know things is forever inconstant. And so this unknown knowing keeps the soul constant and yet spurs her on to pursuit. This is also a very interesting and profound section here. And it reminds me of another one of Eckhart's famous sermons. It's one that uh, my friend Justin Sledge and I often talk about. Um, and it's this sermon where he talks about hunger. Of this kind of... Uh, that, that, and, you know, not literally hunger, of course, but this kind of hunger where the more you eat, the hungrier you get. That this is the case with, with, with God, right? The, 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 the more you eat of, of, I can't remember the exact thing he talks about in that sermon, but uh, just to paraphrase, right? The more you eat of, of, of this, this divine path or this ground, the, the hungrier you get, right? So as opposed to all other kinds of knowledge, when you, when you, when you're curious about something, you want to know something, when you find out how things work, in this case he says, the cause of things, then you, you're kind of done seeking that thing out. You're not... Imagine if you knew... So in my case, imagine if I just suddenly learned everything about religion or religious studies. Just every, I just had all the answers. Now suddenly there would be very little reason for me to keep seeking, for, you know, keep studying. I would probably have to just go you know, study something else that, that's, that's more interesting in, in that case because, you know, I know everything. So then suddenly, you know, it becomes uninteresting. And, and he's saying here that um, when it comes to, to, to knowing your soul in a true sense like this, this is not the case. Um, he says, and I, re, I will reread the last section here. And so this unknown knowing keeps the soul constant and yet spurs her on to pursuit. So this path is, is unending in a certain sense. Uh, which also reminds us of uh, one of the key early church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, who also talks about this union with God, which is not this idea of, you know, you go on the path and then you, you become united with God and then you're, not just, you're, you're done, right? You're united with God. That is not the case. To be united with God is to travel eternally. It's a sort of eternal traveling that never stops because God, after all, is infinite and eternal. So that even when you're united with God, that sort of, that journey within God is eternal in itself. I'm not sure that's exactly what he's referring to here, but yeah, that certainly comes to mind. Uh, let's continue. About this, the wise man said, in the middle of the night, when all things were in a quiet silence, there was spoken to me a hidden word. It came like a thief by stealth. Why does he call it a word when it was hidden? The nature of a word is to reveal what is hidden. It revealed itself to me and shone forth before me, declaring something to me and making God known to me, and therefore it is called a word. 
yet what it was remained hidden from me. That was its stealthy coming in a whispering stillness to reveal itself. See, just because it is hidden, one must and should always pursue it. It shone forth and yet was hidden. We're meant to yearn and sigh for it. St. Paul exhorts us to pursue this until we espy it, and not to stop until we grasp it. After he had been caught up into the third heaven where God was made known to him and he beheld all things, when he returned he had forgotten nothing, but it was so deep down in his ground that his intellect could not reach it. It was veiled from him. So, a core feature of mysticism here, right? In this case, St. Paul reaches the depths of the soul in this case, right? He has this mystical experience. He has insight into the nature of, of God or, or, or reality. When he comes back, he has not forgotten anything, right? He, that, that truth is as clear as it ever was, but he cannot put it into words, right? The intellect cannot grasp those things. So he cannot really, you know, there is no way to put it into images. And, and if anything is characteristic of mysticism, it would probably be this, right? It's this idea that, that reason and words are limited, especially when it comes to, to talking about these kinds, of, these kinds of experiences. Rumi, in the beginning of his Masnavi, says, you know, that love cannot be explained. I cannot explain these things. And then he goes on for six books to, to explain it anyway in poetry, right? But, um, so that's the paradox of mysticism. Um, that these are experiences that cannot be explained, and yet we have these beautiful expressions like this sermon or the Masnavi or whatever it is that, that try in some way to, if not capture, at least sort of point the way to, to those realities. Right? We continue. He therefore had to pursue it and search for it in himself and not outside. It is all within, not outside, but wholly within. And knowing this full well, he said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor any affliction can separate me from what I find within me. There is a fine saying of one pagan master, according to the footnotes, we don't know who he's referring to here, sadly, but um, there's a fine saying of one pagan master to another about this. He said, I am aware of something in me which shines in my understanding. I can clearly perceive that it is something but what it may be, I cannot grasp. Yet I think if I could only seize it, I should know all truth. To which the other master replied, Follow it boldly, for if you could seize it, you would possess the sum total of all good and have eternal life. St. Augustine spoke in the same sense, quote, I am aware of something within me that gleams and flashes before my soul. With this perfected and fully established in me, that would surely be eternal life. It hides, yet shows itself. It comes, but like a thief with intent to take and steal all things from the soul. But by emerging and showing itself a little, it aims to lure the soul and draw her toward itself, to rob her and deprive her of herself. About this, the prophet says, Lord, take from them their spirit and give them instead thy spirit. This too was meant by the loving soul when she said, My soul dissolved and melted away when love spoke his word. When he entered, I had to fall away. And Christ meant this by his words, whoever abandons anything for my sake shall be repaid a hundredfold, and whoever would possess me must deny himself in all things. And whoever will serve me must follow me and not go any more after his own. Just to go back there for a second, he says, when he entered, I had to fall away. Right? So to, again, I'm using Sufi imagery here, because that's what I'm most comfortable with, as you know, but there's this famous Sufi story where the Sufi poet, in this case, it might be Rumi, actually, imagines himself going up to the door of God, right, knocking, and God asks, who's there? And he says, you know, it is I, Rumi, or whatever. And God says, uh, go away. You have no place here. And he does this a couple of times, and he's sort of um, bewildered. He's never let inside the store until finally, and I'm, I'm, I'm butchering the story, but at the end he comes to the door again, he knocks, and God asks again, who is there? He says, no one. And he says, now you have, now you have earned yourself the right to enter, right? Um, 
in God, in union, there cannot be any I, right? There is only God. In the ground of the soul, there is no, speaking of myself, right? There is, in the ground of the soul, there is no Philip. There, there, is, there is nothing. There is only God in this, in this sense. This is how I read it. He said, when he entered, I had to fall away. This is very, again, another one of those themes that we find not only in Christian mysticism or in Sufism, but all across these traditions that we sometimes refer to as mysticism. This idea of the mystical union. And this mystical union uh, presupposes that the self, the I, has to disappear in order for that union to be accomplished. So let's continue here. But now you might say, but good sir, you want to change the natural course of the soul and go against her nature. It is her nature to take things in through the senses and images. Would you upset this ordering? No. But how do you know what nobility God has bestowed upon human nature, not yet fully described and still unrevealed? For those who have written of the soul's nobility have gone no further than their natural intelligence could carry them. They had never entered her ground, so that much remained obscure and unknown to them. So the prophet said, I will sit in silence and hearken to what God speaks within me. Because it is so secret, this word came in the night and in darkness. St. John says, The light shone in the darkness. It came into its own, and as many as received it became in authority sons of God. To them was given power to become God's sons. Now observe the use and the fruits of this secret word and this darkness. The Son of the Heavenly Father is not born alone in this darkness, which is his own. You too can be born a child of the same Heavenly Father and of none other, and to you he will give power. Now observe how great the use is. For all the truth learned by all the masters, by their own intellect and understanding, were ever to be learned till doomsday, they never had the slightest inkling of this knowledge and this ground. Though it may be called a nascent, an unknowing, yet there is in it more than in all knowing and understanding without it. For this unknowing lures and attracts you from all understood things and from yourself as well. This is what Christ meant when he said, Whoever will not deny himself and will not leave his father and mother and is not estranged from all these is not worthy of me. As though he were to say, He who does not abandon creaturely externals can be neither conceived nor born in this divine birth. So again, that same theme that we just discussed. But divesting yourself of yourself and of everything external does not truly give it to you. And in very truth, I believe, nay, I am sure, that the man who is established in this cannot in any way ever be separated from God. I see he can in no way lapse into mortal sin. He would rather suffer the most shameful death, as the saints have done before him, than commit the least of mortal sins. I say such people cannot willingly commit or consent to even a venial sin in themselves or in others if they can stop it. And here we come to another one of those famous themes in Eckhart's thought, which is this, um, at least how I read it, is this idea of the living without a why. That the person who becomes united in this way, who reaches the ground and, and realizes the union of, of the ground, so to say, um, his will becomes united with the will of God. We find this both in Eckhart very clearly, but also famously in Marguerite Porette in the mirror of simple souls. Um, the will of the person, of the soul, and the will of God becomes one will, and so that person cannot sin in that case. Um, Poret, this is one of those things where both of these figures were most sort of controversial, most criticized for. It seems that they, they you could read this as, as they stating that you know, once you reach this state, you don't have to perform the, the obligations of their religion. You don't have to pray, you don't have to give to charity, you don't have to do all these things. Um, or that you cannot commit a sin, that you're sort of immune to sinning. And, but that is not what they're saying. Or this is not what Eckhart is saying here. He's saying that when, when you realize the oneness of the ground, your will becomes the will of God. And so in a certain sense, God acts through you. Because right? your will is united to the will of God. So your will is God's will. And if your will is God's will, then of course you cannot sin. Because God would never sin. And you're so, you know, to use modern terminology, you're so in tune with God that there's no possibility of you making a sinful choice in your life. Right? So that, that, is, that is the theme that he's taking up here. So again, like I said in the beginning, so many of the, the core themes of Eckhart's thought is, is present here. And again, that is, that is one of them. We finish here. 
So strongly are they lured and drawn and accustomed to that, that they can never turn to any other way. To this way are directed all their senses, all their powers. May the God, who has been born again as man, assist us to this birth, eternally helping us, weak men, to be born in him again as God. Amen. So that, that was the first sermon of the amazing Meister Eckhart for the Christmas season, the first Advent sermon. I hope you enjoy that. Um, I think the sermon is absolutely amazing. Uh, it's so clear. Sometimes reading people like Eckhart, they can be you know, dense and difficult. This sermon I don't feel is that dense, at least you know, relatively, right? And also because it summarizes so well so many aspects of his, of his thought, like we've said. And I hope you could also uh, notice that as we went through it. Um, so that was the first one. Next week um, we're going to read uh, the second sermon, and that is the sermon that we already read a few years ago, so you know that's going to be a, a sort of reprise, a rerun for some of you, but um, it's, it's also a very beautiful sermon, so I don't think, I, th I think most of you won't mind uh, experiencing that one again. Um, yeah, so um, I hope the Christmas season so far is, is treating you well, that it's, it's meaningful in different ways, whether you are you know, Christian yourself, if you're Muslim, whatever is your worldview and your identity, um, you know, you either celebrate the Christmas season or you don't, but regardless, I hope, um, I hope life is treating you well, that you find a lot of meaning and, and beauty in life, uh, because there is, there is all of that out there. Sometimes it can be hard to see, especially with all the things happening in the world, but there is certainly beauty uh, and goodness out there for, if, you know, if you can if you, if you know how and where to look. And uh, reading some of these uh, philosophers and mystics, at least to me, it helps us sometimes sort of tune into that um, way of looking at things, where, where beauty becomes a little more apparent, even in, in, in very dark times. And I think that can be especially a powerful message, especially in the Christmas season, and especially like in a very sort of literal and, and kind of surface level way in, in, a, in Scandinavia for example here it's very dark in December right and so any kind of lights that that um, any light that we can we can sort of uh, um, find is something very uh, beautiful and useful so I hope you enjoyed this reading let me know what you thought let me know if you think this um, uh, this format of, of stopping and commenting on things is good or if you think I should just read through it and then we can I don't know we can discuss the details in the comments or something. Um, but I look forward to reading some more Eckhart for you in the coming weeks. Um, again, hope the season is treating you well. Uh, and uh, I'll see you in the next video.